Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk for Tuesday the 29th of August and you can find this podcast in all the usual places, Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk and that's where you'll also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. If you want to get in touch on Twitter, then at MoneyTalkR3 is the handle. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo met with her Chinese counterpart Wang Wengtou in Beijing and stressed the importance of stable economic ties. She said the U.S. sought healthy competition and had no intention to hinder China's economic progress. However, she also told Mr. Wang that in matters of national security, there is no room to compromise or negotiate. But she added the vast majority of our trade and investment relationship doesn't involve national security concerns. Terry Gao, founder of iPhone assembler Foxconn, said on Monday he would make an independent bid for Taiwan's presidency, adding to an increasingly crowded field for the January 2024 ballot. This is the billionaire's second attempt at the presidency. He failed to win the nomination for the opposition Kuomintang party in 2019, and the announcement makes him the fourth candidate for the position. Shares in embattled Chinese developer Evergrande Group plunged by as much as 87% as they started trading in Hong Kong for the first time in a year and a half yesterday. Shares fell to as low as 22 Hong Kong cents on Monday, compared to its last close of $1.65. And that took its market capitalization down to just 586 million US dollars, which is 99% lower than a peak of more than 50 billion US dollars in 2017. The shares closed the day with losses of 79% at 35 Hong Kong cents. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Alex Frew-McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. On Wall Street Monday, U.S. shares started the week on a positive note ahead of a key few days of economic data. Investors will be closely following the Labour Report alongside the PCE Price Index, personal income and spending data, jolts job openings, ISM manufacturing PMI and the second estimate of Q2 GDP growth. The S&P 500 logged its first back-to-back daily gains since July, rising 0.6% to 4,433. All sectors in the S&P 500 were positive, with utilities the only group that was lower. The Dow gained 213 points, or 0.6%, to close at 34,560. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.8% to finish the session at 13,705. All three indices are down so far in August, with the S&P 500 shedding 3.4% and the Nasdaq slipping 4.5%. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index of US-listed companies rose 2.3% after the Chinese government said it would reduce stamp duty on securities trading. Hong Kong and mainland equities rallied after China's Ministry of Finance said the government will cut stamp duty on securities trading by 50% to boost the capital markets and lift investor confidence. 
It's the latest attempt by Beijing to shore up confidence after a record stretch of outflows by foreign funds. On Friday, the Shanghai Composite Index retreated to an eight-month low. However, on Monday, the Shanghai Composite rebounded as much as 5% at the high of the day before pairing gains as excitement about the trading levy cuts subsided in the afternoon session. The index closed 1.1% higher at 3,099. That's its biggest one-day gain since July the 28th. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index recovered from a 1.4% slump in the previous session, jumping 174 points, or 1%, to 18,131 after rising as much as 3.4% earlier. And the tech index climbed 1.7% higher. Overseas investors sold into the rally, dumping around 1.1 billion US dollars worth of Chinese stocks through the Stock Connect program with Hong Kong on Monday, according to exchange data. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Tuesday morning guests um, for the final time for a few weeks while he goes off travelling. Our regular Tuesday morning correspondent, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Oldcroft. Welcome, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. And yes, final time for a few weeks, but uh, and, but maybe I might get delayed if this typhoon comes into Hong Kong. That's true. Yes, yeah, super typhoon. I think it could possibly be super as well. Typhoon. Yep, yep. Mm. Also have with us Alex Fu McMillan, who's a freelance writer and Asia columnist for TheStreet.com. Morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And as always on a Tuesday morning, great pleasure to welcome our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, Barry, I wonder if I can start with you and talk about Jackson Hole and Jerome Powell's much-anticipated um, speech. He warned that inflation remains too high, said the central bank will continue to raise rates if appropriate. But at the same time, he said they were going to move um, carefully. So what did you make of his speech? And in particular, what did you glean from it about where interest rates are going in the US? I think it was as predicted. It was a cautious but positive speech. Clearly, he'll be data dependent. The committee will be data dependent. It's not known if they're going to raise rates in September. I suppose some of the data that's coming in this week will be instrumental. But I thought it was uh, as expected and very impressive. You know, he resisted any attempt to take credit for the rather remarkable economy that has been in effect since the last Jackson Hole meeting a year ago. You know, you've got inflation that is down by two thirds. I mean, that's mm. a big drop. Mm. It's gone from nine to three. So that's good news. But he was, again, cautious and made clear it's not 3% that's the target, it's 2%. And we're not there yet. Uh, one, one, message that, sorry, but one message that I got from that was that um, even if we get a pause next month, this is going to be a long pause. Yeah, I think it could be a long pause. I Look, there's more work to be done. And mm. I think that uh, you've got some interesting wage negotiations underway in the auto industry. If the auto workers get a big contract after the big contract that was agreed at UPS, the parcel delivery firm, that I think would um, augur towards raising rates further. But 
as you say, Peter, it's probably going to be a long pause because things are going pretty well. In fact, I dare say very well, given all the predictions. No recession in sight, probably 2% solid growth. The IMF says 1% coming in 2024, but this is a good economy. Stuart, apologies. I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's, that's fine, Peter. Um, I just think that the target of 2% inflation is a very ambitious target. Um, it's it's lower than current, obviously. It's quite a lot lower than is, is prevalent around the world. And with um, the, the various pressures on the market as well, um, there's, a, there's an element of ambition probably in it. Um, but... Uh, but I would probably disagree with you, Barry, not surprisingly, um, about the timing of any further interest rate increases. Because while the going's good, as it is at the moment, it would seem to be quite a good time to make yet another interest rate increase before the market starts to worry about these things. The, the market doesn't appear to be terribly worried by interest rate increases at the moment. It seems to believe that everything is on track. But he is also very determined, as, as we're just talking, to get uh, get inflation down. So, so why not in increase interest rates at this time? And then you don't have to do it uh, maybe later in the year or even next year when you get the start of the presidential election campaign. And, and that would be seen to be pretty negative. Alex, what are your thoughts there? I mean, it's um, Asian central banks seem to be done with raising interest rates at the moment, don't they? But we still do have this big question mark over the US. Yes, I mean, I think the speech was what you could expect. It's sort of um, saying that the US is near the end of its rate increases if it hasn't reached that point. And, you know, we've got to look to the GDP and jobs numbers uh, this week to see... Uh, how strong the U.S. economy is. It's been remarkably resilient, really. So to see inflation come down to the level it, it's at is, is very positive, I think. Um, you know, the 2% uh, target is quite an arbitrary number, actually. Uh, Paul Krugman had an interesting uh, article um, highlighting that, you know, that there's no um, gold standard at 2%, even though it's thrown around a lot at the mm. moment. He um, wanted it raised, didn't he? He was suggesting that that target should be raised to maybe 3 to 4%. That's right, 3%, yeah, or, or even higher. Um, but if Jerome Powell thinks 2% is where it needs to be, then I suppose we need to watch what, what he thinks more than um, what Paul, Paul Krugman might think. Um, but I, I think, you know, the US economy has been, been remarkably resilient, especially when you compare it to the Eurozone, which is also plagued by inflation and seems to be heading into recession. Um, most of the talk about a U.S. recession has been put on the back burner now. So um, if there was another rate rise, it would be because the U.S. economy is surprisingly strong, which is, you know, fundamentally good for, for the rest of the globe. So, um, yeah, I, the market doesn't seem to be too worried if there's perhaps one more rate rise. I mean, I think the message is that we're near the end of that process if we haven't reached that point already. I would simply add to what um, Stuart said about um, why not raise rates now before you get into an election year. I'm sure that's in their mind. I think that's a very strong argument. But I think, again, on the other side of that is where is the additional piece of straw that breaks the camel's back? You've got a housing market that has been resilient. 
it has held up despite a doubling of interest rates to 7% on mortgages. So I think uh, caution. And I would be surprised if they raise in September unless the figures coming this week are very strong. Christine Lagarde, she was also speaking at Jackson Hole. She suggested that uh, the problem the central bankers have got is that the global economy has changed and the way um, inflationary pressures are, are higher than normal is going to complicate very much the role of um, central bankers, particularly in the, the labour market as well. Do, would, would you agree with that? Do you think maybe something has changed in the global economy and we've now got to get used to this idea of um, you know, much more uncertain inflation and, and the factors that are causing it? I'm going to defer to my colleagues because on this one, I just don't know where she's coming from. She's going to raise rates. It's the Ukraine war and the, the volatility in gas prices that has really complicated the European recovery. Mm. I, um, I looked at Ms. Lagarde's speech. It's impressive. But let me defer. I think, you're, I think uh, Barry, that um, you're right. The ECB has got to raise interest rates and it's got to raise them more or less at the next meeting, regardless. I think if if the US does put up interest rates, then the ECB is absolutely forced to do so. But I think it, it, it's, it's fallen a little bit behind the curve in, in some respects. So, uh, um, yeah, and the geopolitical risks of Europe are significant. Um, and we don't seem to see anything approaching an, an, a, a resolution to any of those geopolitical risks. Uh, oil prices remain high and, uh, and, and Europe remains far too dependent on oil. Um, at this stage, I, don't, I, I just don't see how we can avoid um, uh, probably higher inflation than the US for quite a persistent uh, period of time. Alex, can I ask you about the market reaction to all of this? The, the big reaction has been in the bond markets, hasn't it? Where we've got the 10-year yield now at 16-year highs, persistently above 4%. The two-year yield now is above 5%. Real yields on inflation-protected bonds, they're now above 2%. This presumably, you're at the levels now where yields on bonds provide a real alternative to stocks and you would think that presumably this is going to lead to um, quite a sharp slowdown in uh, in the in the stock markets yes i mean i think europe is definitely in in a much worse position than the us and we're seeing that terrible situation where inflation is still very high economic growth is is bad let's put it uh, bluntly and uh, then they're still having to raise interest rates um which they, they wouldn't want to do if inflation was coming under control. Um, but that hasn't happened, uh, unlike in the United States. So um, it, it's, it's not a good situation in Europe, and I don't see the, the resolution of that. And um, that's going to obviously feed through to the stock market. And, and I agree, making bonds look, look very attractive by comparison if you're looking at persistent problems with, with European stocks. U.S. stocks, on the other hand, I mean, you know, we've seen the Magnificent Seven performing <laughs> uh, ter mm. uh, terrifically, um, uh, tech rebound. Most of the sectors that excite investors have been doing pretty well. So um, U.S. stock market um, doesn't face the same issues and would still look attractive, I think, to people who are looking for, for outsized growth. 
Okay. Um, Barry, let's switch to um, Gina Raimondo, US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. She's in Beijing. She met with her Chinese counterpart, Wang Wangtou. Um, she said after the meeting that the US sought healthy competition. It's got no intention of hindering China's economic progress. She said it's very important we have this stable economic relationship, but she admitted it was a complicated one and a challenging relationship. But she also told him that Washington wasn't going to bend on national security. She said there's no room to compromise or um, or negotiate but she did say the vast majority of our trade and investment relationship doesn't involve national security concerns so what do you make of her comments and and the and the uh, the, the outlook for u.s china relations as a result of this visit her comments were brilliant right down the middle and let's keep the economic relationship strong no decoupling she said that was maybe 24 hours earlier and national security, no discussion at all. Don't even uh, go there, she warns the Chinese. So uh, I think following the visit of Treasury Secretary Yellen, the Secretary of State, we're seeing gradual improvement in United States-China relations. We'll see where that goes. There's been no talk of lifting any sanctions, and in fact, Some have been tightened in the last while. So I think she's off to a very good start in this. And I guess she's shifted now to Shanghai and she wants good business relations. She also said nothing about increased American investment into China, which is pretty much at a standstill. Yeah, I I think we'd have to take uh, her visit, her talking and and both sides as a very positive uh, intent. Um, it's there is an intent on both sides to to be talking to try to find some common ground, but accepting that there are differences and those differences may be substantial, particularly in the eyes of the media, but not necessarily in in, in reality. And I think that's that's probably a different stance than the one that has been around for quite a while. Um, and and I, I like what I'm seeing particularly the frequency with which there are very senior U.S. people meeting very senior Chinese people. Uh, Let's see if this can continue till the end of the year. And also it'd be interesting to see if it starts to go the other way, if Chinese officials go and visit Washington, because it's all been one-way traffic so far, hasn't it? Yes, they have been saying that that was the plan, but they just haven't done it yet. So I think that... um, this is the, yeah, you're, you're right, Peter. I think that would be uh, an even better sign in some respects. Alex, do you th- how do you think the Chinese side is going to react and take uh, Gina Raimondo's comments? Well, they would... I mean, it's a fascinating position, US-China geopolitical relations at the moment. I mean, I think the Biden administration would have loved to have lifted some of those trade tariffs and the Trump era... Um, rules and, and regulations that were put in place, but their hands are kind of tied by the get tough on China um, stance that's prevalent in Washington. Um, the Chinese would love to see some of those uh, tariffs and duties uh, got rid of. And so I think they're quite keen on these kinds of overtures, while also not wanting to appear weak in any way or, uh, or you know, to be going begging and asking for for changes to be made. Um, So I would expect to see Chinese officials heading to Washington and for this diplomatic uh, relationship to continue to improve, um, you know, meeting top level ministerial meetings happening 
which is all very encouraging after a period where the Chinese cut off all ties altogether. Um, and then, you know, on the sort of uh, political slash national security side, um, uh, the U.S. is still going to talk very tough, keep these rules um, and and uh, investment bars on, on companies like Huawei. Um, I think U.S. investors have lost all interest, really, in investing in Chinese stocks. And they are very worried, um, uh, both fund managers and investors, that they'll fall afoul of, of sanctions somehow, um, you know, by investing into a, a, an ineligible company. So um, what I've seen, certainly with my stories, is a, a, a remarkable lack of interest, really, in, in the companies that used to excite people, Alibaba and so on. And it's um, gone in tandem with, you know, a downturn in the fortune of those companies as, as China kind of attacked big tech, um, a, a sort of campaign that seems to be over now. Um, so political links are strengthening. I think investment is going to be very hard for the Chinese to, to encourage. But I think, Alex, you're onto something here, but um, yes, a, a lifting of some sanctions and, and, and tariffs especially. Um, I think that's a possibility. But I think the possibility is that the government, the US government, might look at doing so in uh, towards the end of this year or early next year because it'll have two, two effects. One, it will relieve pressure on inflation. And so there's a potential of... Uh, um, supporting the lowering of inflation, it will open up markets to goods, particularly that people want to buy, and and, and we know that the the volume of sales around Christmas, particularly, which are, uh, tend to be much more of Chinese goods because they are uh, used as gifts and, and 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 so on, and I think it opens up the um, avenues that would be looking quite good for Biden in his election year, assuming he is going to continue to be um, the Democrat um, election candidate. I, so, I think we would have seen those changes made already if the Biden administration felt comfortable with it. And I think that, that they will be very leery of of uh, looking like they're going easy on China heading into the election. So mm. uh, I, I would not expect to see any changes there. I think we would have seen them already uh, early in, in the Biden um, term and and not as we head into, you know, uh, a decision that voters are going to have to make next year. Larry, what, what do you think? Do you, do, you, do you sense the same thing, that first of all, the Biden administration is probably not going to change any tariffs? It would have done so by now. And are, are you also sensing as well from over there that US investors have just lost complete interest and, and faith in Chinese stocks? Correct. I do. I think they've lost interest. But they would uh, rush back in if things improve and they're waiting for a geopolitical signal. And it's probably not going to come. I think it's going to be more of the same. But relations are not good overall. And unless there's some progress on these big geopolitical matters between the United States, Europe, and China, uh, there's not going to be any uh, real change. Could yeah, but we, we all know that these things can be changed on on a whim. You know, if, if we had uh, President Xi meeting with um, President Biden somewhere, maybe even in Washington, that, that will change the whole dynamics dramatically. 
Um, I'm not saying that's going to happen. We have no indication that it will happen. But that, but that is part of the potential plans. Well, Stuart, I'm going to disagree with you because <laughs> uh, you're oh, conveniently going to be away. But yeah. I would expect that Presidents Biden and Xi will meet in New Delhi in less than two weeks' time at the G20 summit. Yep. And I don't think that's going to have a dramatic effect. I don't think it's going to be a signal that we were talking about in terms of American equity investors rushing back into China or for private direct investment. But we shall see. But you won't no, be to discuss it. No, it's what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're quite right. Now, Alex was quite right. I mean, there is absolutely no interest by American investors in Chinese securities these days. And, and there's negligible interest in Europe as well. Um, but you know, we, we know what how fickle investors can be. And if we see a change of fortune, if we see a, an upturn, well, it, it can, that can change on a sixpence. Um, I'm not saying it will do, but I think that's the, that, that is the potential. But we need to get rid of the Chinese property industry um, and, and the problems that have been created by that but, uh, before there's any serious intent of an upturn. Do you think the 50% cut in stamp duty on stock transactions that was announced by the government over the weekend and got people a little bit excited yesterday for a while anyway, does that make much of a difference either for foreign investors or local investors? Not really. I think, I mean, it's, it's a minimal amount. It's, uh, it, of course, it's, a, it, it's not the amount that is the issue. It's, it's the fact that they've done it um, and it will... Uh, give a bit of encouragement, but the encouragement is very short term. And I, uh, and, and I doubt in the next two weeks um, after that, we'll have any interest being shown with respect to that cut and stamp duty. Mm. Yes, I mean, we saw that rally fade within a day. So within a day. We're going to see any longer term feed through than that, really. Mm. Does it at least send out some sort of symbolic sign that, you know, the government is aware of the problems and is trying to address them? Or is it just simply not enough and, you know, investors need to see more? I, I think it's more of a worrying sign, to be honest, that the <laughs> Chinese officials are, are mm. constantly looking for things that they can do. And they really don't haven't been able to find a solution as to how to talk the economy back up, how to talk the stock market back up. They keep sort of attempting to order it back up and it's not listening. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, unless you see real stimulus aimed at, at, uh, at getting the Chinese economy back, in, back on track, um, I think we're going to keep seeing a very poor stock market and, and, and lackluster economic numbers. So I, I would guess that it, it's probably more, more worrying than anything that Chinese officials are so concerned because they would have, you would imagine they should have the, the best view of the Chinese economy and know just how weak it is. Mm. Yeah, I, but I've been saying for a while, Alex, that I think the, these officials in Beijing have just, they're just not experienced in these circumstances. They've, ne they've never seen it before. They've not had to deal with it before. They have only certain policy measures available to them. And, 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 and so I think that um, that's what, where part of the struggle arises. They don't have the, the um, inventiveness to try and find new ways of handling it. Mm. 
Barry, I want to move on to BRICS. Um, that's the other big issue for, for China at the moment. Um, as we know, last week, the existing five BRIC nations, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, invited six uh, new members to their group starting on the 1st of January, which is going to be Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. That's an interesting uh, mix, isn't it, of, 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 of rather diverse countries there to, to join the BRICS. But these these groupings have a sad history in the past of not really achieving much. Do you think this could be different? Yes, I do. I think it's got the potential to be a game changer over time because uh, the BRICS have been meeting now for 15 years and you do have a couple achievements already. You've got a contingency reserve arrangement where they've agreed to help members in distress. Argentina, of course, would be the first to raise their hand and uh, they're a basket case. That was Brazil's doing that they're in. But also they have the new development bank, and now it's going to be enriched by Saudi and UAE money. So I think those two steps are positive. The delicacy here is you don't want too many members because you can't then get consensus. And it's hard enough as it is because these are very discordant countries. I mean, after all, what does Iran have in common with South Africa? What does Argentina have in common with Iran? Uh, this, this is going to be a delicate dance. And of course, the real issue is China and India. They don't agree on really anything except they want to change the global economic architecture. All 12 countries, 11 countries, are united in that. G77 failed. Non-aligned movement failed. This one could succeed. I think China will use the BRICS as a kind of... Uh, testing ground for the digital currency, the digital renminbi. I think they will look for a new payment structure in local currencies. And everyone knows the Chinese are going to be the most important player in this arrangement. But I think they came out of Johannesburg enriched and, in fact, successful. Now, it's hard to hold this together, but they've done pretty well for 15 years. And taking in these new members, I think they'll be fine for the next five. Stuart, are you optimistic? You sound terribly positive about this, Barry, and I'm probably not so positive. Um, the the issue for the for me is that we've got here, um, yes, a, 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 a new bunch of disparate nations with a lot of money in the form of what uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE can bring in, um, and that sounds good, but. UAE and uh, Saudi are, are not um, long-term friends, as it were, in terms of the the, the willingness to put money up. Um, they will they will do it if they see a profit. If they don't see a profit, then they will move their money away very quickly. Uh, I also think that um, the the overhang of Russia being part of this will not encourage the rest of the world to to look that positively towards this as a grouping. Bear in mind, this was not, in fact, an original financial grouping in the first place, but it was Jim O'Neill's good idea for an investment for his clients at Goldman Sachs. And um, and, and it, it's only as a result of that that, um, that they came together in the first place. So, Alex, let's give the final word to you, your, your thoughts on BRICS, and also 
do, is this more about being what it's against rather than what it's for? This seems to be China's way of sort of being anti-US and anti-West. It certainly does. And uh, I mean, as, as a, I'm half South African, but uh, you can see that South Africa has sort of um, not wanted to take a stance on the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, you know, and it says it's because it's one of the BRICS nations and therefore an ally of sorts of, of Russia. Um, so you've got, I think, the economic relationship between these uh, countries, and that's why they were put in this grouping, was that they were large, uh, high-growth emerging markets uh, at the time that the BRICS moniker was, was created. These other countries uh, are sort of a hodgepodge of, of countries that you can't say have high growth. Uh, some of them don't have huge populations, although they're all sort of sizable on that front. But, um, yeah, it does seem to be more of a, a political alliance um, justified by the fact that they um, perhaps have, have tensions with the West and with with democracies and, you know, U.S. leadership of the of the world, if you can call it that. But, you know, that does put India in a funny position because they're also in the quad. They're an ally of the U.S. They're a democratic nation, so they are sort of the odd one out of the of the BRICS in that sense. Um, South Africa is a, a democracy, but perhaps the the weakest economically uh, uh, in normal times. Um, uh, Russia obviously having having big struggles now, but yeah, it, 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 I think it's going to struggle for uh, for an identity, and that there'll probably be too many different. Uh, people pulling in different directions for there to be any cohesion for that entity. Plus, you know, they need to come up with a new acronym, which is going to be very hard with all of those countries. <laughs> that would be impossible. <laughs> that can be the uh, the challenge then for someone to find the, the acronym for these 11 states that are now part of the newly formed BRICS. Well, thank you very much. Very interesting discussion this morning. You heard there Alex Fru McMillan, who's a freelance writer and Asian columnist for thestreet.com. Our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood, and Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft. Thank you very much for listening today. Please take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find a lot more information in my daily newsletter about the topics we've discussed on this episode. On tomorrow's program, I'll be talking with Enzio Ronfal, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk. 